Bible with you and want to open to Daniel chapter 8, or you can read along on our screen, or if you have an app you prefer to use, just let's get it, Daniel chapter 8. We're continuing this series in uh, the book of Daniel, which really we could say about any book of the Bible, the gospel of Daniel. Jesus says that all, all of the scriptures point towards him. All of the scriptures come to give us not merely historical data, intriguing prophecies, but to give us the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so this is exactly why we're here, trying to learn a little more about what it means to be exiles in this world. To be a part of God's kingdom in a world that oftentimes is full of the opposite. And in many ways is characterized by that. And so this morning, uh, usually, you know, we read the whole chapter at the beginning. We're going to mix things up a bit because these chapters are pretty long. So we're going to just kind of read through it as we teach through it. And so pray with me now and we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for this good news that we've heard read and sang. And we've got to read and sing. Thank you that you've gathered us here together today. And we just want to acknowledge your presence as the most important presence here. It's your word that we need. It's your interpretation of our world and ourselves that we need. It's your son that we need. And we pray that now as we uh, come to hear your word, we would abide in him. It's your spirit that we need to empower us to see what we need to see hear what we need to hear and to be changed. God, we throw ourselves in total, complete dependence upon you right now, asking that you help us, and that you bring glory to your name as you do good for your people in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in December of 2007, I, I heard some really tough news that one of my best friends had cancer. And to you it would be just a name, but to me it was a big part of not only who they were, but who I was. It was a friend who had written me little, literally hundreds of times in college, not just discussing life, but it was in a, in a devotional exchange, a way that we would hold each other accountable. We'd do our Bible readings and write down our gleanings from what God was teaching us, and then we would send it back and forth from each other to encourage one another in what God has done. It was a friend that I was embarrassed to admit that I couldn't beat at Tetris, which was our favorite game to play together, but whom I could embarrass with corny jokes in any setting. It was a friend who had gotten pregnant in the same year that Cassie and I had our little girl, same age as Kaylee. And it was a friend that when she uh, was diagnosed with cancer was pregnant with a little boy the same age as Elisha, or would have been. It was a friend of great faith, and through faith and prayer believed that she had been healed. It, it felt like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped into the fire, and God said, the flames will not touch you. It, it felt like Daniel in the lion's den, and the lions were there but didn't bite, but as have often happens in cases like these, it's not how the story ended. Things got worse, and even with all the faith in the world, and I know some of you are from certain backgrounds, church backgrounds, you know, 
you know how faith can be talked of and maybe in an exaggerated sort of way even it was it was the the it was the faith that said we're not even going to talk about any potential of a bad thing happening because that would be a lack of faith I know some of you know what I'm talking about but the leukemia struck back with a vengeance in the bones and my friend died she died She died in her mother's arms, and her son died inside of her. Now her little girl is left to grow up without a mom. So my qu questions for you Christians this morning is, where is God now? You know, where... Where is God when the worst comes true? Where is God when things don't get better, but things get bleaker? We're often not as ready for the day when the fire does burn and the lions do bite. At such times, we can nearly go numb. We don't know what to feel if we're honest, our faith in God can be challenged to the core. When we ponder the great evil done in the past and the present and maybe worse to come in the future, we have to ask ourselves, how do we make it? How do we prepare for that? How do we endure in that? How do we not merely just figure out how to survive in the world, but actually live as the sent people of God, sent to both display and declare good news to other people when we may think, I don't even know if I can get out of bed in the morning. Up to this point in Daniel, there's been some hard times, but there's been some big deliverances. We've heard the stories many of us have heard in Sunday school, may have had our little felt people that we put up when we were young. We've colored the pictures and maybe in some sanitized form, you know, you know, thought, oh, this is happy, people being thrown into fire. Oh, isn't this a nice veggie tale story of Daniel and the lion's den? But Daniel 8 is just going to lay down some really extreme, hard stuff that the people of God were not only going to have to be prepared to face, but be prepared to suffer in. But the good news is, as we'll see, is that although evil does have its season of great power and great prospering, evil has an expiration date. Is that the days are set. It doesn't have the last word. Gods have God's people and God ultimately has the last word. But what we're called to do is to have a faith that is ready to trust God and to live faithful even if we face a future where the lines bite and the fire burns. So we see this vision. We're going to walk, walk through this text this morning. And, and in some ways, it's, it's another one of these weird apocalyptic unveilings. But chapter 8 has actually a lot more specificity to what those prophecies uh, 
coming to pass looks like, but, but still, we're going to probably not language we're used to. So verses 1 and 2, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. So it's just giving us some settings of where Daniel's at, or some people think where Daniel perceived that he was at in the vision. So either way you want to slice that, let's move on here to the ram. So we see the ram in verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So to help us here, two horns, one's higher than the other. The higher one comes up last. This ram is charging from west to north and south. He's unstoppable, and he becomes really great. That'll be important a little later because we're going we're gonna to see uh, a lot of greatness. and Some people maybe you've even heard of in history. But then we see a goat go from rams to goats, beginning in verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And the ram and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So the goat from the west. This, this goat is so fast it looks like he's not touching the ground, almost like he's flying. He has this conspicuous horn between his eyes. He def Although the ram was great, the goat's greater. Defeats the ram, unstoppable. The goat's the greatest, but the goat doesn't last. And that great horn breaks, and four other horns rise up in its place. And now we're going to turn our attention to what happens out of one of these four horns with this little horn. Verse 9, out of one of them, that is those four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, this is important, and toward the glorious land. We'll see this glorious land is, is the land of God, Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw the truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So the little horn, out of the four, one becomes great to the southeast in the glorious land. He grows great to the host of heaven, throws down, tramples the stars, becomes as great as the prince of the host of heaven, takes away the regular burnt offering from the prince of the host of heaven, overthrows the sanctuary of the prince of the host of heaven, and a host is given over to the little horn, 
and his people to be destroyed, as we'll see. And the little horn throws truth to the ground, and he prospers in doing so. Verses 13 and 14, an angel will ask, how long is this going to last? Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? For some of you may be familiar with the abomination that causes desolation. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Well, Daniel, we're going to see he's rightly upset and disturbed. But unlike many of the other sort of apocalyptic visions, revelations, unveilings, this interpretation has a little more specificity that helps us. So let's jump here into this interpretation. We see verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So if you've ever wondered, wonder where they get this angel Gabriel stuff at. If you've heard that somewhere, well, this is one of the places that that comes from. As Gabriel the angel comes to give him this interpretation, sent from God to do so, Daniel is frightened. Right? So again, we see an angel in the Bible, angels are not these little chubby babies flying around. You know, they're these, these beings that even as they're revealed in human form, are, are strikingly, it seems, terrifying in their appearance, not because they're mean or wicked or evil creatures, but because of the, the distinction that they bring. He says that he has come to give him a vision of the end. Now, uh, we're, we're going to see here in this, as we do in verse 19, that the end is, some may think it's the end of time, but while it may very well be that, it has direct focus on the end of the vision that has been given. Notice verse 18, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So that is, he's going to give an interpretation of this vision, but he's particularly going to focus on the interpretation of the end of the vision, that is, related to this little horn. That's a lot of details, guys, but hang with me because this is God's word and I think we're going to land somewhere where you're like, wow, that's, this, these rams and goats and horns actually make a difference on my Tuesday mornings. And so we see this interpretation begins to be spelled out. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we don't have to go like guess. Well, maybe they're this or that. Very clear. And Cyrus was probably one of these two, probably the dominant one. Verses 21 and 22. And the goat is the king of Greece. So it just tells us. And the great horn between his eyes is the first horn. As for the horn that was broken in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
for the great horn of the goat is the first king. And the nearly unanimous agreement on this that we're talking here about Alexander the Great. And I think most of you guys have probably heard of Alexander the Great. If not, I'm sure there's a movie probably to be watched about Alexander the Great if you miss that in your education. Alexander the Great comes from the West. He becomes king when he's 20 years old. And by the time he is 32 years old, he has conquered basically all of the known world. So if any of you in here are 32 or older, you're probably going to feel pretty depressed right now. Right, so by 32, I've kind of conquered the known world. He defeats the Persians, particularly in this, who at that time were such a superpower. And then he dies at age 33 in 323 B.C. or thereabouts. So he's lived a big life and died at a young age but accomplished much. And we're not here to, to study Alexander, but that's who it's talking about. These four horns are four kingdoms that come from Alexander's reign, but they're not as great of him. We see he seeks to hand it down in secession, but it, it doesn't work. And so four generals that represent four areas of this empire overtake the throne. We'll talk about this later, but the specificity of this prophecy is crazy. And it pushes you to a point to where you really think, okay, either God can is knows the future and can reveal it, or we've just got to give this book a real way later date because we don't presuppose God can do that. We'll get back to that in a minute, but that's, that's important. But to the little horn, where the focus takes place, is, as the angel says, verses 23 through 25, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great, Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So we see this little horn. We're going to jump back into verse 10. You don't need to click back there. But remember, he comes to the glorious land. We remember he takes these stars and throws them down. This host that is the, the people, we could say, of the prince of hosts, the, the people of God. You may remember that the, the people of God in the Old Testament time are even spoken of stars. Abraham's going to have children that are as numerable as the stars of the heaven. He's going to throw down the saints. He will kill thousands of those. He will kill even in, in history, we learn, a high priest of the temple at that time, Onias III. He is a king of bold face. And there again, there's almost unanimous agreement, which is very rare in any interpretation of prophecy in the Bible, that this was Antiochus or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He came from the Seleucid Empire, which was one of those four that was represented after the end of Alexander the Great, and he was a very wicked and evil tyrant. He wanted to bring unity within the empire that he oversaw through a unified Greek religion. But this wasn't a, a peaceful pathway that he went on, but it was enforced. You 
you need to comply or you will die. And it wasn't give you an opportunity to comply. It was we're coming in and we're going to turn over, overthrow, and kill anyone who would continue to practice any other faith. This is why it says he defies the prince of the host. That is, he defies God himself. The prince of princes. When he comes into Jerusalem, one of the first things that he does is he ends sacrifices in the temple. So he removes the regular burnt offering. To make things worse, he then sacrifices a pig on the altar. If you know anything about Jewish culture, one of their boundary markers or signifying traits was their food laws. And one of the foods that they did not eat to show their distinction among the nations was pork. Well, this guy just rolls in, goes right to the altar, and sacrifices a pig. To make things worse, he then takes an object of the god Zeus, and he places it in the Holy of Holies. We don't have time to give the whole history, but if you don't know, that's a really big deal. The Holy of Holies, the throne room of the God of Israel, where the mercy seat was, where nobody just walked in. He places another God. It says he throws truth to the ground. It's because he, he took copies of the scriptures and he just burned them. So just imagine the temple of God here is just being ravaged. It's being defiled. It's an abomination that causes desolation. What does that mean? The temple is left desolate. It, is be, it, is be, it has been so disgraced and so defiled. And then in, in light of all that, then now Antiochus goes and he slaughters thousands of people who continue to press faith, profess their faith in the true God. I know at least one person in here who knows about the intertestamental book between the Old Testament and New Testament, Maccabees. If you want to read a little bit of this history, you can go and read the story of the Maccabees and the people of God as they live in this time. It was, was difficult to say the least. What we note here about this little horn, about this evil, wicked ruler who comes and brings such persecution and impurity to the place of God and the people of God, is that he's powerful, but notice his power is not ultimate, but he succeeds in his persecution. He rises up against God, but we hear he will be broken by God. We see this reference to 2,300 days and in, some people interpret these, this quite differently as maybe just being half that time, you know, that's just speaking of evenings and mornings. But in, in many cases we see that it, it looks like it's a little over six years and so it could have been from 170 B.C. to 164 B.C. from the time of that high priest Onias III's death until Judas Maccabeus cleanses and rededicates the temple. Or because of its being so near to seven years, some people say it just points to this sort of incomplete time of suffering 
that goes on for a really difficult amount of time but doesn't have the last word. And just one last thing to say about him before we get to these points that we need to apply in our own lives and times is epiphanies refers to this meaning of the manifestation of God. So Antiochus might sound like a normal name, Antiochus IV, but he wanted to add on to that. No, call me Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm the God that is manifest. I am the one you see who rules and who reigns. Antiochus becomes in the future sort of the prototypical or the first picture of what we know as Antichrist. And the evil and wicked things that he does to God's place and to God's people become sort of that prototypical or, or first pointers to, to this language that we understand in the Bible of tribulation. This is why Jesus uh, refers to this in Matthew 24. Uh, one writer says he links Daniel's vision about Antiochus's persecution to the final persecution and in some ways maybe the ongoing persecution of the people of God. Jesus says, when you see the desolating sacrilege or the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. At that time there will be great suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So in understanding how prophecies work in the Bible, it, it's almost like what you're looking over the of a, of a course of mountain ranges. So we, we, we think that maybe prophecies give us all the valleys, but a lot of times it's just giving us these mountain ranges. It's why in the Bible you can see that there's multiple fulfillments to different prophecies that when the prophets give them often look like just one single soul event. They're not seeing the valleys, they're not seeing the times, they're just seeing, wow, this is what happens. And so Antiochus comes, this great persecution. The prophet Daniel sees that clearly. And Jesus is saying here, oh, well, there's more to this. There's more to what Daniel is talking about in Daniel chapter 8. In many ways, it was probably connected to a, to a next coming destruction of the temple in AD 70. But it seems that Jesus even points forward that there's going to continue to be and maybe in the end will ultimately be other great periods of tribulation where God's people suffer. And Jesus gives us this warning so that we will not be taken by surprise and so we will not give up on God. I want to repeat that. Jesus gives us this connection from the prophet Daniel in chapter 8, this vision, this expectation of the suffering of the people of God so that we will not be surprised and we will not give up. The New Testament speaks of these evil rulers as antichrist. Last time we read from John... 2.18, 1 John, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And 
Paul in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus in Matthew speak that there may very well be an antichrist and final evil ruler that comes. But however you want to slice the bread of that interpretation, all of us, all of us in here need to be able to be ready when the worst happens, when the fire burns, when the lines bite. What was Daniel's reaction? Notice verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. That was his response. This is a sickening thing that's going to happen. But life had to go on. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So I didn't have this in here, but it just really strikes me. Like you still got to get up and go to work. You still got to get up and go to work for Babylon, even when you're having to live with the reality of all this pain and suffering that's to come in the world. But I think what we see here, maybe our first way of application, is how that God invites us into this together. One of my youngest son a couple years ago had this sort of strange way that he began to deal with conflict and in, in his bunk beds that we had at the time, he would hide in the cubby. So if, if things were getting bad in the house or maybe he had gotten trouble, maybe he was having to endure some type of tribulation, instead of wanting to talk about it, instead of wanting to deal with it, he would just go get in the cubby in his bed. Just like imagine a bookshelf and you're going to get down in the bottom part and just kind of hide. It's this mentality of sort of, I think, I, I think things are just so bad, I'm just going to hide and hope they go away. I just want to hope it blows over. And some of you may be tempted to deal with pain and suffering in your life or in your world in that way. I know I am. Half the times when I see my, my children acting in ways like that, my, my first response that I believe the Holy Spirit says is, that's a lot like you. But I think what I would like to say to Josiah and did at that time is what God wants to say to us is that I'm with you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide in some kind of hobby because the pain is just too big to face. You don't have to hide in some kind of distracting adventure or, or new way of obsession. God is saying, where are you? He's saying, I'm here with you to talk about the truth. Things are bad out there. But I'm not a God who lives in denial. As we see Daniel's response here, though we don't see a specific commendation that this is the way that we are to respond to evil by being overwhelmed and laid up sick. It's a little bit encouraging that God said, I want, Holy Spirit, make sure that's in, in the Bible. Make sure that's the way it's told. As that even sometimes the strongest of God's people, Daniel of all people, can't even get out of bed because it's got so bad in his head. 
I think what we're called to see here is God has not told us that we just simply have to smile through our suffering. Some of you in here may have heard a brand or a blend of Christianity that just says, just suck it up, put a smile on your face, and move on. Now, are we told to rejoice at all times? Yes. Are we told to give thanks in all circumstances? Yes. But we need to be careful that we realize the place of our rejoicing is in the sovereign reign of God, not in the evil that we endure. We don't look at our problems and we say, Oh, wow, look at how bad life is. High fives. No, it's why Paul says we grieve. But it's those who have hope. But we still grieve. He says we cry. We weep with those who weep. Yes, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Do we have hope at all times? Yes, but not by living in denial. Are we called to stay strong? Yes, but not at the expense of embracing our weakness. Are we called to trust in God's sovereignty? Yes, but not by belittling the reality of our own confusion. Are we called to have faith? Yes, but we dare not have a faith that silences the cry of the saints of all times. How long, O Lord? But even now the martyrs cry out before His throne. God gives this vision to Daniel, and it's a hard one. But it's an invitation for us to see that God is with us in it. He wants us to know what's coming. Some of you in here probably need to tell the truth in a way that might make you sick. How could I do it? How could I feel, allow myself to feel that? where God met Daniel and I. I believe he wants to meet you there and me there too. You know God can handle it. You're not too much for him. If Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes doesn't have the last word on the people of God, and whatever evil that has come against you in your life or has maybe come out from you in your life won't either. Maybe you've tried in the past to come out of the cubby hole and tell the truth only to be shamed or guilted or silenced. I just want to remind you that others, maybe other people can't take it. God can. Daniel likely had very little people to process this with. He's in a foreign land where they could care little about God. Well, there's a few things here very, very, very quickly that I think we can see in this vision, though, that can give us a little more hope. I just want to hit these. First thing is, is why, why the focus on Antiochus in this story and not on Alexander? How many of you in here have heard of Antiochus Epiphanes before you got to, to Lee University or outside of your church? Anyone? How many of us in here have heard of 
Way to go, Peter. Ruin it for me, kids. Uh, how many of you in here had heard of Alexander the Great outside of church or outside of the university? I mean, is that not the more important guy to be talking about here? Why would God focus his prophecy in on Antiochus and not Alexander? Did God not know there were going to be more books and movies about Alexander? That there was more money to be made with Alexander? You want to know why? Because the history of the world as God sees it is around the people of God. Not the prosperity and popularity of people in the history of our world. God loves His people. He loves you. He loves us. In this gym. I mean, there's, there's probably going to be some kind of awesome concerts happening tonight in the world, and God loves art. We believe that. There's probably going to be some great political meetings that take place this year. But God's Word tells us that when the people of God gather together for the purposes of God, that's where history's really being moved forward. That right now in huts and in villages throughout the world where people are gathering together to worship and encourage one another, that's really where history is happening. Not Washington, D.C., as important as those things are. But at the end of the day, it will be God's people who rule and reign over all things with God's Son. He sees us. He sees you. You may be thinking, my life would be the most tragic story in the world, and the most tragic thing about it would be how boring it is. Some of you might think, yeah, I've experienced some measure of evil and suffering, but the worst thing about it is it's not even that exciting. Some of you in here maybe even think, I don't even really have much of a story. God wants to remind you through the way this prophecy is revealed, He sees you. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your dreams. He knows your ambitions. And He knows all of those things when they are left in the dust. Nobody else may see you or feel you when the fire burns and the lions bite. He does. He does. The next thing is, why does God share a vision that seems to embarrass Himself? I mean, it's, it's pretty embarrassing, right? I'm the God of all creation. And this dude's going to march into my house and kill my servants, sacrifice a pig on my altar, and put a statue or an object, sacred object to Zeus in my holy of holies, and then burn my word. God doesn't take out the unpleasant parts of even His story. God is not defeated by Antiochus, but He is extremely defiled and extremely disgraced. 
although I believe we see it better through the eyes of Christ, Ellie or Eli Weasel, my wife can pronounce, help me pronounce that afterwards, a Nobel Prize winner and Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, tells of the time when he was in a concentration camp and was compelled, along with a few others, to witness the hanging of two Jewish men and one Jewish boy. He says the two men died quite instantly, but the dying of the young boy, for some reason, just wouldn't end. He struggled in the gallows for half an hour. Somebody behind Weasel or Weissel, he heard them mutter, Where is God? Where is he? Weasel says he heard a voice softly within him say, he is hanging there on the gallows. What he was saying is, God was there suffering with him. And what we know better is, we know that is no, not some fault that we understand merely from the history of Jewish suffering within the Old Testament, but through the one who comes and is the true people of God, our King Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David, the one who was the true temple of God and was defiled and disgraced. He enters this world as a child and a wicked ruler and an evil tyrant named Herod goes after him as a baby to have him killed. And if he can't find him, he will wipe out all the kids he can. That's the world into which Jesus enters. A world of child slaughter. He goes into the wilderness and he faces Satan directly. Some of you may not know this, but read in the book of Luke. He go, In the ministry that's taking place in his own hometown, you know what they want to do to Jesus because of his ministry? They say, let's throw him off a cliff. Let's throw him off a cliff. His own biological family, as he goes about doing the work of God, is to assume he must be crazy. They're embarrassed of him. His brothers are like, somebody shut him up. He's making us all look bad. The religious leaders call him demonic. His closest disciples aren't always a lot better as he's rebuked by Peter. James and John fight over who's going to get to sit at the throne as if this is about them and their place. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Rome spits on him, mocks him, crucifies him. This was the great abomination of desolation. And we're not out of this story either. In 1 Peter 2, 24, we read that he bore our sins on the tree. 
In Isaiah 53, we're told he was crushed. Not just under wicked authorities and evil governments. Why was he crushed? For our iniquities. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that he became sin. Whose sin? Our sin. He hangs on the cross as the temple of God, defiled and desolate. But that's not the end of the story. Because in taking on all the suffering that we've endured and the world endures, past, present, and future, in taking upon himself the sin of the world, just like all evil rulers and all the stories in the history of God's Word, past, present, and future, evil oversteps its bounds. Evil assumes that it has power. As Antiochus says, I am God manifest. He steps into a role that he cannot hold and that only one can hold. And through the cross, as evil looks like it wins, evil is being defeated. As sin looks like it is going to have the last word, the Son of God's victory has the last word. And Jesus comes forth from the grave as the King of kings and Lord of lords. One day He will return and all evil governments and powers will be destroyed. And we will be presented before the throne as spotless. And we will be safe. And not even the worst of the wicked will be able to touch us. And even now that future reality has broken into the present as the Spirit of God indwells us and we now are the temples of God. And the world may seek to defile us and disgrace us and even ourselves through our own sin and our own rebellion may seek to defile and overturn God's work. But the good news is, is His sacrifice can't be stopped. It was once for all. It covers us. It cleans us. His place can't be stopped. Because His place is no longer about a building. His place is about a kingdom that now resides in us. His people can't be stopped as we have a kingdom that can't be sh shaken. And His truth can't be stopped as we learn His Word cannot be bound. The reality in all of our lives that sometimes the fire burns, sometimes the lions bite. But in the end, God reigns. Father, we thank You for the good news of Your victory. And we pray now that as we come to Your table, that it would remind us that you have defeated all evil and that we would drink this cup and eat this bread until you come and destroy all evil one day. 
And we pray that you help us as your people to be prepared to suffer, knowing that as you took up your cross, we must take up ours. But may you free us from bitterness that comes through unexpected trials, and may you free us from a brokenness that leaves us debilitated. May you get us out of our beds like you did Daniel and send us into the world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Each